This episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast is sponsored by AWS Energy. AWS brings the most advanced and secure cloud services and deep industry expertise across energy, utilities, and sustainable energy sectors. Together with a broad partner ecosystem, AWS is accelerating the energy transition through practical innovations to deliver energy efficiently, reliably, sustainably, and responsibly. Learn more at aws.amazon.com slash energy. Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Ed Kovalik, Chairman and CEO of Prairie Operating. Now, a few weeks back, I went on an investor summit with Prairie Operating, where they basically told us all about their operations and what they are trying to do in the energy space and and kind of the the big picture. Now, instead of me trying to dig in and dig all of that stuff out for you, I figured let's get Ed on. Let's have him talk about his his company, what he's doing and why. And then there is, so this will be a little bit different. We'll have Ed introduce himself in the company. Then we've got a snippet from that investor summit. And then we'll close with the typical closing questions. So with that, Ed, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Prairie Operating. Joe, thanks for having me on the show today. Uh, My background is is a little uh, unconventional. I started my career in investment banking and did that for 15 years before private equity. And then I transitioned across the aisle to operate oil and gas companies and service companies and kind of did a little bit of everything in the conventional energy space. Uh, so th- that's kind of the career path that I've taken. Uh, I took a little bit of a sabbatical during COVID because it wasn't any fun uh, being in the oil business when oil prices were negative, as you can imagine. Um, but uh, as you know, the economy around the world started to come back, uh, it became evident that we needed to produce as much oil as, as we could as a country. And I think you're starting to see that now in the, in the supply shortages driving the cost of oil. And so that's really what motivated me to get back into the business and start Prairie. Very cool. And can you tell us a little bit about Prairie Operating, as much as you can about where y'all are working, what this position is, and and just, I guess, as much as you can and are willing to tell us? Absolutely. So Prairie uh, purchased a 37,000-acre 
position in Weld County, uh, which is an old oil field that had been, you know, developed from the 1950s on. And like a lot of great shale plays in the U.S. that start as old oil fields, they get redeveloped using modern technology. Um, our acreage is very similar to that. Um, we are in the northern part of the state by the Wyoming state line. Uh, we're really attracted to this position because, you know, it's a, it's a proven old play where a lot of oil was left in place, which is perfect for horizontal exploitation. And, you know, we were looking for an opportunity to basically take land and convert it into cash flow. Uh, the greatest opportunity to do that is when you can get a large swath of acreage. And, you know, of course, uh, the Permian Basin is really popular. Uh, it's the popular kid on campus, as, as they say. So it's impossible to get a large position there. Uh, and whatever you can get there is really costly. So we started looking at other places. Colorado was attractive to us because the economics in Colorado have always been really, you know, top of the totem pole, um, as close to the Permian as you can get. Uh, but a lot of companies left Colorado over the years because of the regulatory regime and being contrarians by nature, we were attracted to it because the economics are so great and the regulatory uh, regime can be managed and we're really good at managing that. So that's what Prairie is uh, in business to do is to go exploit our 37,000 acres and to drive production growth as aggressively as we can. Yeah. I think that that is, is, very interesting and, and always enjoyable to think about the contrarian nature of of how you get into the energy business. And and I I appreciate the idea of working in a place like Colorado, places like California or offshore, where there's regulations that, that would keep some people out. But what that does is it makes sure that the oil that's coming out of the ground is some of the cleanest oil that there is. And I think it's, it is enjoyable from that side to really think about and, and highlight the opportunity to, to make this energy that we need still and make it in the cleanest way possible. Absolutely. You know, at the end of the day, uh, we try to be the most environmentally responsible producer that we can. And frankly, that's easier to do in Colorado than it, it, it is to do in the Permian for a couple of really interesting reasons. Um, namely, that we have access to a lot of power. You know, um, I had uh, been involved with running an oil company in the Permian before. And of course, one of the challenges there is that everybody else is there. And so access to scant resources is challenging. One of those resources is, of course, electrification. And without electrification, you're having to run a lot of your equipment and facilities off of diesel. And, of course, you know that's not extremely environmentally sensitive or friendly. Um, whereas in Colorado, where we are, we have ample access to line power. In fact, we're you know right off of a 60-megawatt uh, substation on our acreage where we've got availability of most of that power. So we can run an e-rig without having to burn a lot of diesel. We can run our facilities off of line power. So 
it's really a pleasure and a luxury to be operating in that kind of environment after, you know, working in other parts of the country. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we get into the environmental aspect a little bit more on the, on the, the snippet that we're going to be feeding in here. But before we do that, I do want to, I want to ask one question that I, 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 I don't remember if I asked or if we talked about it before, but one thing that I've been wondering is that you're you're going to the public market with your company. You're not going the traditional private equity route that you see most, or at least what what has been the common route is go raise money through private equity and then go develop your acreage. I guess the the question here is why why the public markets? Why not PE? That's a great question. We, we get asked that a lot, particularly when we brought the company public. Uh, a lot of our friends kind of asked, Hey, you guys, you guys are a little nuts for bringing out an acreage position. You know, isn't this typically a private equity kind of a transaction? And there are really two reasons I think that motivated us to do it this way. Um, namely that we wanted to allow public equity investors or shareholders, uh, be it retail investors, hedge funds, institutions, pension investors, really anybody that wants to buy our stock, we wanted to allow them to participate in the value creation alongside us in converting the acreage into cash flow. And in my experience, that is the greatest moment of value creation opportunity in this industry is buying raw land and drilling it and proving and growing production. And so typically, as you, as you know, sponsors, private equity sponsors would participate in the lion's share of the economics associated with that stage of value creation. But we just thought it would be really neat to allow our shareholders to participate in that rather than private equity. The other reason is that our strategy fundamentally as a company doesn't really marry up with private equity strategy. And what I mean by that is traditionally private equity investors like to acquire acreage like ours, prove it up to some level, and then sell the company to a larger public in exchange for a more liquid stock in the acquiring company. Uh, and our strategy was is really an exploit. It's it's really an acquire and exploit strategy where we want to fully develop a property rather than just prove up a few wells and then try to sell it. And and so what we're trying to do is to bring forward as much of the cash flow that's locked in our inventory in the ground. We want to bring that forward by drilling that property as fast as humanly possible. So. Our strategy is to recycle capital aggressively, to take almost all of our revenue, less our GNA, to repurpose that as capex, to drive production growth really, really aggressively, to and that in essence brings forward all that cash flow. So we're exploiting these properties, and that's not really what private equity wants to do. Uh, and the reason we're doing that is because we're not so focused on the long-term inventory life of the property because we don't think the public markets really care. Uh, you know, there used to be a time where 
you know, it was important to talk about, hey, we've got 20 years of inventory or we've got 15 years of inventory or 30 years of inventory as a public company. But the value of that inventory so far in the future is so heavily discounted as to make it worthless. Uh, rather than have it be worthless, we want to bring that all forward so that we're really never uh, sitting on more than 10 years of inventory. And and so that's the second fundamental reason why this was, wasn't done as a private equity deal. Uh, and, and we just see a lot of really a tremendous inventory, a great pipeline of other assets like ours to be able to do the same thing with that we're currently doing with our asset, where we can continue to acquire assets and apply the same kind of aggressive development model to those assets as we're applying to ours today. That is, I, I think that that is uh, obviously a, a great reason and, and it makes sense why you're, you're going the public route. And I, I think that's, it is interesting from that regard. And, and I think one thing that, that you alluded to as well is the, just that freedom aspect that you have when you you may have shareholders, but it's not a it's not a single company who has taken over your board, who is who is running your show for you. You're just kind of making sure the wells get drilled, and I think that's a very important aspect that it gives you that freedom to go and acquire those additional assets and to drill as fast as you want to drill. It's I think it's very clever. Well, at this point, we are going to cut in a few other questions where I had Ed and Governor Rick Perry on, who is also at the, the summit. We, you'll get to hear those. And then when we come back, we will go over my final questions. Governor Rick Perry, Ed Kovalik, CEO of Perry Operating, thank you all for joining me today. I'm not the first ones you've joined. You've been here talking for a very long time. So I'll try and mix it up a little bit. I'm gonna ask different questions. Ed, let's start with you. You stated earlier inside that the, the barrels of oil that Prairie Operating is going to produce are going to be some of the cleanest barrels produced in the US. How do you plan on going about validating that or conceptually kind of showing that to shareholders and to the market? Well, it's something we're very proud of and something we're very focused on with respect to our future operations because it's good for everybody. It's good for us as a company. Uh, we're protecting our shareholders. It's good for our constituents uh, that own land upon which we operate. It's good for the environment. And we're, we're really, at the end of the day, stewards of all of those different groups. And so, you know, we'll be very transparent as we proceed with our operations, but it, it comes back to... You know, using electricity uh, to pull line power for an e-rig so we're zero emissions in our operations and all our facilities. Uh, uh, make sure that we're uh, watching any leakage with respect to methane or other pollutants uh, and, and focusing on that. And really just utilizing the best-in-class technology to ensure that we can be the cleanest producer of oil and gas in, in the world. Yeah, yeah that's, that's great. And I, I like the fact that you pointed out the the electricity the e-fracks the e-drilling rigs and pulling that energy from the line i think governor perry you were instrumental in making texas the largest wind producer in the u.s 
But as we see, we maybe overbuilt, we're underutilizing, and what that's done is caused grid instability, which is never really a good thing, even as we're chasing more and higher rates of renewable energy penetration. So how do you see things like what Prairie Operating is doing as a way to, as a way to kind of bring in the opportunities we have in Texas with all of that excess renewable and, and still providing abundant energy. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's wise for us to go back and look at what happened 20 years ago. We had $14 an MC of, uh, natural gas prices and, uh, we were looking for some alternatives. Well, we only had two, uh, reliable sources of, of power at that particular point in time, old and efficient coal plants and, uh, gas plants that were coming online. And at $14 an MCF, we're kind of looking at our whole card, so to speak, about, you know, gosh, what are some of the alternatives that we have to this really high-priced uh, power? <clears throat> Wind, at that particular point in time, was a alternative, and I think of uh, an appropriate alternative to look at. Anyway, we made the decision that the state wanted to help subsidize that in industry by building the Crest lines from Mountain West, Texas, where the wind blows to where the people are. And we did that. And, you know, I made the statement that uh, if we could get to 15% of our portfolio on renewables, that we would be really blessed. It'd be a good thing. And, uh, fast forward, uh, what, 15 years and, the federal government coming in and giving these massive subsidies to the renewable industry really got us out of balance, uh, I, I think. And I think most people would agree that having 46% of your power relied upon renewables, your dispatchable energy for renewables, uh, is not a good balance. So having fossil fuel, uh, and, and particularly fossil fuel company like Prairie Operating uh, that's putting in some really innovative, new, thoughtful, uh, environmentally friendly uh, processes, uh, I think that's going to be the future. I think that's what the citizens expect. They want the lights on. And we know to have the lights on, you got to have fossil fuel and baseload. It's only going to come in two ways, either what uh, Prairie Operating is delivering or uh, in the case of small modular reactors, which probably a few years down the road, but they're coming and we need to be uh, preparing for that transition. So making sure that we have a, uh, a, a reasonable supply of energy, which companies like um, Ed's is going to, they're, they're going to deliver for us and then helping us make the transition, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road to uh, um, a, a even cleaner uh, source of energy totally makes sense. So you both have renewable energy experience in your backgrounds. And I think, Ed, for you, this is so important as you're leading a public energy company that is unleveraged and and basically that that gives you that control and the ability to to make movements when and how you need to. And I've got more thoughts on that, but I, I want to hear from both of you. Having this diverse energy background and this diverse experience, why do you think that's important as you are in a leadership position for, for an energy company or, 
or in the public space? Well, speaking for myself, I think our vision for Prairie is first and foremost to be an energy company uh, rather than just an oil and gas company. So if we think we can deliver baseload power to the world in a way that's economic for our shareholders, then you know you, you better believe we're going to try to do that as well. Unfortunately, we just can't do that with other modes of energy today. Solar and wind don't generate the kind of equity returns that public shareholders expect. Uh, certainly in today's higher interest rate environment, they really can't compete with T-bill rates. Um, so that's just a no-go proposition. But we're watching everything else. Uh, you know, we're, we're watching geothermal to see what kind of advances you're going to see there. We're big fans of SMR. And if there's an opportunity to pursue a project there that we think could be commercial and practical, uh, we're, we'd be very interested in that as well. So from the public sector's perspective, our job is to make sure that the lights stay on, uh, to make sure that uh, you don't overtax, you don't overregulate, you don't overlitigate, uh, have an environment so that people like Ed and his company know that they can invest in the future and have a chance to have a return on their investment. I mean, that, it's really that simple. So, um, and, and, and not putting your thumb on the scales. And government loves to put their thumb on the scale. Listen, I'm, I don't get confused about that. But having the common sense to understand that if you get this grid out of balance, the physics gets a little bit weird. Listen, I'm an animal science major. I wasn't really good in physics, but I understand that if you get out of balance with the power that's going into the grid, then you're just asking for trouble. And so that's the reason that we've got to have this baseload power supply that comes from fossil fuels and our nuclear government needs to make sure that they incentivize more of what they want and not tax and regulate and litigate to the point where people like Prairie operating can't make a, a an appropriate return on their investment. That's government's job. Then get out of the way and let the private sector do what the private sector does really well. Yep. Well, Governor Perry, thank you. Ed, thank you for joining me today. And thank you for everyone joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. All right. And we are back. Ed is still here sitting. And I hope that with those other questions that that were cut in, you've got a better picture and a, a more complete picture of Prairie operating. Now, I want to get into my final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. And even though I only had 15 minutes with you before, now I get to ask them to you. So that first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Oh, man, that's a tough question because, you know, we've got so many uh, great books to cite. But I'll, I'll tell you uh, one I'm reading right now, which I highly recommend to anybody interested in our, in our field, which is Robert Bryce's A Question of Power. Um, this is a fantastic book really dealing with um, the, the importance of electrification. And at a time like today when there's so much – uh, talk about our electric grid and the electrification of so many things in our lives. Um, Robert really does a tremendous job um, level setting uh, the way electrification really works and 
uh, it's just a great read for, for anybody interested in this area. Yeah, I am surprised. I have not gotten that recommendation yet. So I will definitely be adding that one to the list. It sounds fascinating. Now, the next question is, how do we get to net zero? Well, um, I think there are probably a couple different ways we can get to net zero. I think uh, the question is really more importantly, when? Um, if we want to get to net zero quickly, we can starve half a billion people in six months and force all sorts of mandates on the world with respect to electrification, uh, apropos to Robert's book. Um, but I'm not sure that that's a great solution. Uh, I think that long term, um, the only way to get to net zero is through nuclear. Uh, and this really has a lot to do with the density of power. Uh, and it's, you know, it's no different than the foods we eat. I don't think you and I would be very satisfied surviving on lettuce alone. Um, you know, I know some people that would argue with me, um, but uh, I'm not sure that would be a really fun way to live. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we need energy density and, the things that we take for granted in the Western world, particularly in the U.S. and Europe, are energy-dense lifestyles. Uh, I saw uh, some kind of a comparison recently to you know people 70 years ago in the U.S., um, the amount of energy they were consuming then is still um, an order of magnitude greater than most parts of the world today. Uh, and so if we're going to get to net zero, we're going to have to provide uh, the world's people that are unelectrified, which is a great proportion of the world, with energy-dense solutions. And nuclear is really the only solution that can get us there. Uh, it's baseload power, and it's not intermittent, and it's reliable. So I think that's really the answer on a long-term basis. I think that uh, if you follow the policymakers' recommendations, you'll end up with, you know, a net zero uh, solution that's more akin to what I what I joked about when I started my answer, which is you'll you'll, you'll cause I think a lot of starvation and misery in the world because, you know, at the end of the day, people need power, and just forcing people to electrify without baseload sources of that power is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely hear you and, and agree there that we need more power. We need more baseload power and understanding how to get that and how to do that in a judicial safe way is, is that is almost more important than the actual act of getting the power. How do we do it in a safe manner? And so it, it's, yeah, absolutely. So now the last question is you actually get to ask me a question. Well, you know, you, you talk to a lot of interesting people about this topic. And I guess what I would ask you is why do you think policymakers today are pushing for an aggressive net zero mandate without a clear eyed path to get there? That that is a good question, and that is not one that that I get often. 
I think that because it's a mystery yeah, to me. Well, I think there's I think there's two aspects. And a earlier I was I was talking with with one of our other podcast hosts who actually his focus is geopolitics. So talking mm-hmm. with him there and when we look at the political realm, I think that we have in the US, we have hamstrung ourselves by requiring people to rerun for office every two or six years. And, mm-hmm. and in that same way, a two party system is also a hindrance and the, the ability of, of people to be lifelong politicians. I think that is another one of those that, that there, there could maybe be some value in, in reevaluating those different aspects and all that to say to your question, why are we, why are we setting these very strict, very um, optimistic deadlines for reaching net zero and, and everything else? I think part of it is the rhetoric and saying we are going to set these deadlines because that's what our constituents want to hear. And I think that that ultimately pushes, pushes a lot of the, a lot of the conversation because they think that's what, what people want. But then I also on the flip side and, and maybe to play, to play uh, the good guy advocate, I think that there is value in setting mandates, setting targets and saying, this is the target. We want to hit it. We want to figure out how to hit it. And, and by having a target, then you have something to measure against. And then you have a a reason to go forward. Whereas if you just have a, oh, let's, let's do better for the environment. I, I think that's a, that's a feel good statement that doesn't actually drive change. Whereas if we say we are going to be net zero by 2050, that says, oh, well, okay, how do we get there? Maybe let's start trying. And then it starts pushing forward technology development and and tax credits and trying to figure out how to get there. I think I'll leave it at that. I've got plenty more to say on it, but I, I do think that that is the core as to maybe why and how it's happening and why we set targets that some people may look at and, and laugh about because they, they think it's impossible. Whereas others may, may say, Oh, this isn't hard enough. We've got to do more. So that's, yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I agree with you. The targets are good. Um, but I also agree with you. The targets probably have to be realistic, or more realistic, with a with a clear path to how you achieve yeah. them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that is that's a very important thing to point out. That there, whenever whenever with my company Tavera, we apply for government funding, and they for different mm-hmm. projects, for research projects and new technology development projects, and they always want smart goals, which is. Uh, I forget exactly what all the letters stand for, but it is it is something that is, I think, I don't know what S stands for, but it's measurable, achievable, realistic, and timely. And then there's an S for something, maybe scalable. Yeah. But that's that's important that the government says, 
if you're applying for funding, you need to have a smart goal. It needs to be achievable and realistic. Otherwise, we we don't want to give you money. And there, there, there is a a lot of people who would argue that maybe some of these net zero goals are not smart, as in the acronym of being measurable, accurate, realistic, and timely. But it's a uh, that's another conversation for another podcast. So, Ed. Lots to talk yes, about. Absolutely, we can we can do that over over some some other conversations. So, Ed, thank you so much for joining me on the show today and for jumping back on to fill in a few of these other pieces. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Well, Joe, thanks for having me on once again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You know, I would encourage your listeners to check out our company. You know, we're Prairie operating. We're currently trading under the ticker symbol CRKR. Uh, We're working on uplisting our company to the New York Stock Exchange shortly. So that's really exciting. And uh, just uh, keep watching us. You know, we've got exciting things in the pipeline that we're we're, uh, looking to bring out. And, uh, you know, really excited to be a new entrant in the the U.S. uh, shale industry. Yep. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for joining me on the show. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy related stories, we have all sorts of energy related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. If you're into stickers, I have a way to get you some from us. You go to the show notes, click on that one question survey link, fill it out, and then we will send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. That email address is joe.batir at OGGN.com. If you don't use email, find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.